1: What's up, podcast fam? Happy Monday. Hope you all had an amazing weekend. So excited to release this episode today with David Pacows. Before we jump into this one, please take a moment, share this episode with a friend, subscribe to us, Bits of Gold Podcast. David Pacows easily has one of the craziest stories, and I am so excited to share it with you today. First off, There is a movie about David's life. Todd Phillips directed War Dogs, which came out in 2016, which is based on David's life and story. If you have not seen that movie, I highly recommend it. It's funny, it's action packed, and it is just a wild story. The short of it is David and his partner received and won a U.S. Army contract to supply ammunition for the Afghan National Army worth $300 million. The film stars Jonah Hill, Bradley Cooper, and Miles Teller, who plays David. David's journey is just beyond inspiring. He became an ammunition dealer after recognizing financial opportunity to make some money, be set for life, and go and do what he always wanted to do, which was just play some music. After securing this mega contract with the government, they ended up running into some trouble with the government, which landed David $0 of the $300 million contract in seven months and house arrest. In this episode today, we dive deep into it. His story, it's just wild. What I love particularly about David's story is he never gave up. He never lost hope or stopped moving forward despite the adversity that he faced. While on house arrest, he decided to dive back into his love for music and launched a company called Beat Buddy, a guitar pedal drum machine. They went on and raised nearly $500,000 in under 30 days and recently launched a 10-second flosser that grossed almost $1.5 million in 30 days via Indiegogo and Kickstarter. His story is a story of triumph. It's a story of moving forward despite the hardship that you endure and you face. David's resilience is beyond amazing. His story is just incredible. David, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. I'm, I'm so pumped to have you on. It's my pleasure, Dan.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I reached out. I feel so many people know the story. They've seen the movie War Dogs, but Maybe we could like take it back for those that haven't seen it. I highly recommend they go and watch it, but um, maybe you could just take it back to, um, I'd love to hear like the, the story from your perspective. Um, right. And we could take it back and, and tell a little bit about the story and your background.
0: Okay, sure. Should should I start from the beginning?
1: <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> okay. Well, a very long time ago,
0: <laughs> uh, once upon a time, the whole war dog story started, uh just for anyone who is unfamiliar with the movie uh it, the movie came out in 2016 it uh, stars uh, Jonah Hill as my former partner and Miles Teller plays me in the movie i have a uh, much better hair in the movie than i do in real life uh i guess, this is a podcast so people can't see but i am completely bald uh <laughs> um but um only in hollywood could give me a full head of hair you know that's the the, cl- the classic hollywood treatment <laughs> but um so anyway uh uh w- back in 2005 i was 23 years old and uh i was at the time i was studying chemistry in college um i had a few side hustles to you know make money while i was in college i was uh, working as a massage therapist I, I was a licensed massage therapist they they have that in the movie um I was also uh, uh, importing some uh, like memory cards from China um, you know and selling them on eBay and uh, and also I was um, uh, importing uh, uh, bed sheets and towels from Pakistan and selling them to uh, old age homes and to to, uh, to uh, elder care facilities, I believe is the correct term and the and to hospitals and things of that nature. That made it into the movie too, though. They changed it a bit, you know. In the movie, they always try to to make everything as dramatic as possible. So, uh, you know, in the movie, they have me like, you know, being a total loser who's like barely making ends meet and like going with a stack of towels to like different elder care facilities and begging them to buy it. You know, I I never actually did that. I was selling in bulk to distributors. I never actually took possession of the goods. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little bit different than the way they show it in the movie, but. But overall, the movie is uh you know true the the general story is true,
1: yeah, so you're twenty three How do you find your way into yeah. uh like importing and at right. the time were you looking to turn that like into a business where were you, I'm just curious where you were at in terms of so you're twenty three in school trying to figure out what you're gonna do professionally? are you doing yeah. this more like just to make some extra fun money you're trying to survive or is it like I want to get into the importing business. Just not sure what what what's going to take me there. What what, what was like going through your your mind at that point in your life?
0: Well, at that point, I, I was really just looking to make you know some money to uh, to live off. You know, I wasn't really looking to make millions of dollars importing towels or you know. Um, I was also you know, as I said, working as a massage therapist part time. Uh, my main thing was school. And my main passion was music. I've always been a musician. Uh, well, I learned to play guitar when I was 15. I've always sung. I've always been a singer. You know, my mother's a singer. So we used to sing when I was like a kid together. And, and that's been like a, a real bonding thing for us. And um, my dream, like every young musician, was to be a rock star. You know, every every boy wants to be a rock star and uh I was writing songs i was you know doing a little bit of recording and you know dreaming of being a rock star and uh um everything else was kind of like uh like uh, you know kind of like just more of a survival thing you know so i was i was doing i was doing you know all these like little side hustles not to try to make a huge amount of money but to make enough money to live off while i did school and while I, you know, pursued my music. So that was, so that's where I was at. Um, uh, obviously, you know, if I saw a way to make a lot of money, I would be very interested in it, which leads up to the, to the next, uh, part of the story. Um, at that time, I, uh, when I was 23, I bumped into my old friend, uh, Ephraim DeViroli, who's played by Jonah Hill in the movie. And, uh, he had just, he had, he, we were, we had met each other when we were kids, um, young teenagers in a synagogue. We we're both Jewish and our parents went, we didn't go to the same school, but our parents went to the same synagogue and neither of us liked to pray. So we'd, you know, sneak out of the synagogue and hang out outside and, uh, you know, make trouble. <laughs> and so that's how we met. And uh, when he was in I think when he was in eighth grade, he got caught smoking some weed, you know, like uh, in his uh, private Jewish school. And so they kicked him out of school. And to punish him, his parents sent him over to uh, work for his uncle. Um, You know, they figured if you're not going to be, you know, serious about school, you're going to, you know, join the real world and work your ass off, you know, see what it's like. And uh, so they sent him over to LA to work for his uncle. His uncle uh, owns a big pawn shop in South Central LA. One of the things they sell in this pawn shop are guns and ammunition like most pawn shops. And his uncle was bidding on contracts to the local and state police to sell them handguns and uh you know various other pieces of equipment, uh holsters, accessories, things like that. And so he learned from his uncle how to bid on these government contracts uh, to the state and local, uh, you know, the LAPD. And he learned the whole procurement process that governments go through when they want to purchase things. And he became obsessed with guns. He became like a total gun nut. I mean, he learned everything there was to know about every gun out there. He knew all the specs. He knew all the, you know, like literally he was a, that was like his obsession. The way I was with music, he was with guns. So (laughs) So uh, he worked for his uncle for, for uh, about two years, and then they had a big falling out. Um, they, uh, they each claimed the other one screwed them out of money. You know, who knows who's right? You know, they each have a different story. And uh, he moved back to Miami and started his own business when he was uh, – um uh, like, I guess when he was, he was just under 18, he had his, he had to use his dad's business because he wasn't old enough to like, uh, have his own business. So that's where AEY came from. Um, the AEY is the company that, uh, that we worked under, um, his dad used it as like a small label printing business. He hadn't used the corporate entity in a few years. Mm-hmm. AUI stands for, despite what they say in the movie, where he's like, "Oh, it stands for nothing," you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it actually does stand for something. It stands for the initials of uh, his of his, him and his two brothers, Ephraim, uh, uh, Ephraim, and Yeshaya, which are his brothers, his, him and his brothers' uh, names. So it's the initials of his three sons. His dad named the company after them. So uh, anyway, he took over that entity from his dad to start doing business under and he started bidding on federal contracts. And this was like 2004. So the Iraq war was uh, had just happened. You know, we just invaded Iraq. And now they were trying to build a democracy in Iraq. And part of that was buying a whole bunch of supplies for pretty much everything and including weapons and ammunition that they were going to give to the Iraqi police and to the Iraq, the new Iraqi army, uh, you know, to build a country there so that eventually the United States could leave. That was the plan. So they had these huge amounts of contracts out there that the government was looking to purchase and he started bidding on them and he started doing very well. And so about a year into that, uh, you know, we bumped into each other and he, I told him what he told me what he was doing. I told him what I was doing. And he goes to me, I was like, oh, you know, I you know, I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, you're doing like international importing. That's kind of what I do. But I'm waking, making way more money than you. You should. I need a partner. You're a smart guy why don't you join me and be my partner? We'll make way more money together than, you know, than your stupid sheep business, you know? (laughs) So, so I asked him, I'm like, well, I mean, how much money are you making? You know? And this is the first question anyone would ask, right? So he said, he, he, I'll remember this always. He like looked at me and he's like, you know what? I'm going to tell you, and I'm not telling you this to brag. I'm telling you this to inspire you. Uh, he's like right now i have 1.8 million dollars in the bank and he like opened up his bank account and he showed it to me and and he was 18 years old and i knew that <laughs> he didn't come from like a super i mean his grandfather is very wealthy but like his parents aren't like super wealthy he didn't like get that money from them um so so i was like wow this guy obviously knows something i don't cuz i don't have you know, 1.8 million dollars in the bank. So I want to learn what he's doing. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'm in, and uh, we we started working together. He was a, a total workaholic. I mean, this guy was like obsessed. You know, he literally worked 18 hour days every day. He'd wake up in the morning, get on the phone, start you know going on the government's websites. You know, and literally work nonstop. Even while he was eating, he was working. I mean, it was like unhealthy. You know. Yeah. Um, And But because I was working with him, I became the same way. I became super stressed out and, you know, total workaholic and uh, not something I was used to doing. Uh, I was more of like kind of like more of a chill musician kind of guy, you know, that liked to just, you know, play my guitar and write songs. And, you know, um you know, do have a few side hustles. I, I wasn't used to the whole, you know, work like a dog morning until night kind of thing. But, but, you know, I figured, hey, you know, this is what you need to do. And even though it's not particularly fun, I'm going to make a few million dollars and that'll help me become a rock star. That was my plan. You know, with a few million dollars, you could, uh, you know, get a nice amount of promotion for your music. And uh, hopefully that, that you know, that helps you take your your music career
1: take off. The whole uh, time you were focused on getting back to music, you were just like, yes. this is going to give me the, cushion i need
0: yeah because the thing is is that it was not you know despite what they make it look like in the movie it was not a fun business to be in it was very very boring honestly you know it was because if you think about what we were actually doing We were we were brokers, right? So we weren't actually manufacturing anything, or designing anything, or creating anything new. We were buying from one person and selling it to the U.S. government, and everyone else was trying to. All our competition was trying to do the same exact thing. So, uh, pretty much, what the 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 uh, the job involved was: first, you'd go on to the government's website, which I'm sure you're. Listeners are curious to know it's fbo.gov, right? Like uh, <laughs> Fed, Fed Biz, Federal Business Opportunities, Fed FBO. Uh, still up there. You can go take a look at it. And uh, this is where the government posts all of the things that they want to buy. So if they want to buy, you know, uh, ammunition, they post, uh, you know, like a, uh, you know, what they call a request for bid or a request for quote (RFQ), request for quote, uh, and they'll say this is the type of ammunition, how much we want. These are the, you know, it could be manufactured between this year and this year. You know, it's got to be stored in this kind of thing, and and it's going to be delivered to this location. Give me a price delivered to this location at this time. You know, so they give you all the requirements that of what they're looking to buy and when they want it delivered and everything, and then you submit a proposal or a quote uh, to the government. And they don't tell you obviously what other people are submitting. So you, it's kind of like a blind competition and you don't know how many people you're competing against. You don't know what prices they're giving them. So, you know, for you to win, you have to give the lowest possible price that you think you could afford to, to give and still make it worthwhile to do that business. Uh, you know, like with enough of a profit margin to make it interesting as a, as a business person. And, um, And then, uh, you know, give them that proposal. And then if you're lucky, you're the lowest price or the best value to the government, so to speak, Uh, what they call uh, best value, which, you know, sometimes the price isn't the only factor. Sometimes it's, you know, on-time delivery or if it's like a very – Critical thing that they're, you know, it's like a high, has high security implications, for example. Like if, you know, like a a very important mission is depending on this ammunition being at this place at a certain time, they may be willing to pay more money if the person delivering it has a very good track record of delivery. So, so, you know, if they're very reliable, they may be willing to pay more money for reliability in certain cases, but in other cases that, you know, price is the more important factor and and they usually tell you in the quote, you know, these are the factors they are considering. They won't tell you what weight they put to every factor. You know, they won't say yeah. this is much more important than this. And they, they keep all of that scoring. They have like a system where they score each, each, um, proposal, uh, you know uh, you know they'll give you X number of points for the price X number of points for your proposed delivery X number of points for your history uh, etc and then they take that score and they compare all the all the different proposals from the different uh, uh, you know contractors who who are all competing for this bid and then they decide what is the best value to the government and that's how that's who wins the uh, the bid so the first uh, contract that I personally won after getting into this business was um, was uh, for fifty thousand gallons of propane it was uh, to uh, d- uh, it was a contract with the air Force and they needed this propane for uh Air Force base in Wyoming i think they uh, they were using it for like heating during the winter. And um, I hadn't, I didn't know anything about fuel, I didn't know anything about propane, or the business or the industry. But uh, I did my googling and I, uh, you know, learned about all the different companies that supply propane and how they transport it and uh, you know, which and I got, uh, you know, quotes from everyone I could and I put it into a spreadsheet and saw the you know, the the various uh, the, the quotes for the for the product itself and the quotes for the delivery. And what was the best deal as far as, you know, the total overall cost delivered to the Wyoming Air Force Base? And uh, I, you know, bid this to the government, you know, filled out all their paperwork, which is usually a lot. You know, the government loves the paperwork. <laughs> And they usually – the funny thing is they usually have a lot of paperwork in there talking about how they're reducing paperwork. <laughs> there's there's literally paperwork about the Paperwork Reduction Act in every proposal, which I always thought was hilarious. Um, so, yeah, just to give you an idea of how much paperwork there is. So, uh, But, you know, and, and that that's one thing that keeps a lot of competitors out of this business is just because the government is so – such a pain in the butt to deal with that. A lot of people don't want to deal with them just because of, you know, all the different rules and regulations and, and paperwork that they make you and all the hoops they make you jump through. So yeah. that, that keeps a lot of uh, the less motivated people out of the business. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I won this 50,000 gallons of propane contract made, you know, uh, I think I made like eight grand on it, which was not a bad start. Um, and, uh, and then I was off to the races and started bidding on a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So
1: you guys weren't just moving ammunition. You were bidding on right. all different government contracts. Yeah.
0: Yes. So we were bidding on all sorts of things. Uh, I bid on socks. I bid on SUVs. I bid on meals ready to eat, MREs as they call it in the military. Uh, you know, like these canned food packages. Um, we even like bid on some services, you know, like like uh, security services and like a uh, base in, in like uh, South America. And, you know, like and we we're trying to, you know, get – like, uh, 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 you know, security contractors to to do that. So there's all sorts of things that you could bid on. And uh, but we ended up specializing in weapons and ammunition just because Ephraim knew that that industry very well because he was obsessive about guns and so he really knew all the details of uh of you know every single weapon system and like who manufactured it and where it came from and what the different laws were for for different types of weapon systems and all that stuff so he had a bit of a specialty in that area and so we ended up focusing on that type of business just because you whenever you have a a, a specialty like that you're more educated about, you naturally have an advantage in that field, because you have to do a lot less research, you know, where to go find the supplies, you know, not to waste your time with certain, you know, uh, suppliers or locations and to focus on one thing rather than another. So different people, when they get into this business, it's obviously an enormous business, uh, uh, federal contracting, um, uh, supplying the government, and different people tend to specialize in different Uh, types of products so some people will specialize in ammunition and weapons like we did other people will specialize in fuel other people specialize in clothing um, services you know so people tend to to specialize but we did go for uh, you know for for Many different types of contracts, not just weapons and ammunition, because, um, I mean, we're, as I said, we were working 18 hour days. And if there weren't ammunition or uh, weapons contracts up there, we'd go for something else. Anything that we thought we could win. And, and and you can't and win top. anything. I mean, it's, it's like, sorry to interrupt you, but like, there are some things that you, you know, you're not going to win. Like they put up contracts for fighter jets <laughs> and you know, you're not going <laughs> to win that contract because there's only one company that makes that fighter jet and they're going to win it, but they're required by law to put up a contract. It's called a sole source contract. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you do have to know what to go for and what to ignore. And that's part of learning that business.
1: So you obviously have these side hustles. You right. Just made eight thousand dollars. Right. How how soon after were you like, whoa, this is a this is a crazy business. or we have a we have a big opportunity in front of us. Right. It was. Um. I mean, I started dropping
0: off my side hustles as soon as I won that contract. I still, you know, I I still was working as a massage therapist, and I had like, you know, I had a few regular clients that you know, I I you know, I'd had for uh, for like a few years at that point. And, um, uh, so, but, and I, finally stopped working as a massage therapist when we won the, when we won the big contract, we won the $300 million contract. Then I was like, you know what, I'm not even gonna keep my old, uh, my old, um, contract. I told all my clients, you know, what, I'm out of the massage business, <laughs> even though how, I was doing well before that. But like, you know, like, you know, I felt bad dropping them, you know, until until that
1: point. <laughs> how long did it take to get that contract? Like from so you make $8,000. Yeah. I assume business is going well. Yeah. I'd love to hear the story behind getting that contract. And right. I know in the movie, it's like a hilarious scene, but um, yeah. maybe you could take us back to that moment.
0: So we started bidding on the contract, that contract, it was a long bidding process, but we started bidding on, you know, like working on it about like eight or nine months after I started working with them. And, um, it took us like almost six months to actually win the contract until they finally gave it to us. So it was, uh, it was quite a long process. And, you know, it was a lot of back and forth and a lot of like a few months would go by and they wouldn't, wouldn't hear from them. So when it, we first started, I'll always remember it. I was uh, driving home and um, I get a call from Ephraim and he's like, uh, he's like, get over to the office right now. And it was like, you know, like eight at night, you know, and I'm like, I'm going home, you know. And he's like, no, we don't have time for that shit. We got to work right now. I'm like, bro, I'm going over to my girl's girlfriend's house, you know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he's like he's like fuck your girlfriend you know, you're gonna make money going home right now you want to make money <laughs> you know <laughs> he, he was he's like that kind of guy so um uh and, and and i'm like just tell me what what's going on i'll take care of it tomorrow he's like there's they just posted the biggest contract he's like i don't know what the size of this thing but it's going to be huge i've never seen numbers this big and uh we um uh, you know, uh, uh, and it was this, this request for quote for this, uh, for this, uh, uh, enormous contract where they decided to, uh, because in Iraq, what they did was they split the, the, the sources of supply amongst many different contractors. So they had, you know, let's say they needed 100 million rounds of ammunition. They would, for example, split it into 10 different contracts of 10 million rounds and give it to 10 different contractors. And the, the, the idea behind that strategy was that even if one or two failed, other people would succeed. So it was kind of spreading the risk. But they realized when they did that that managing all those contractors was just a massive pain in the butt, and you know it was just a you know kind of like an inefficient way they also got much worse prices and and you know so they decided they're gonna save a lot of money and be a lot less of a managerial headache uh when they wanted to arm uh the army in Afghanistan because what was happening this was in uh two thousand six uh, the the Bush administration was was in charge then. And they were pretty unpopular at the time. And uh, they figured that the next president might be a Democrat and that, which they were right about, of course. And they were, they figured that the next president, the next democratic president would pull out of Afghanistan like very quickly, which they were wrong about. Uh, but um, they figured because, you know, the next president might put out, pull out of Afghanistan, they wanted to arm the Afghans with enough ammunition uh, to last them for like the next 30 years. And uh, so they put this together, this request for proposal um, for a, uh, for a truly enormous amount of munitions. And it wasn't just like ammunition, like for small arms, it was also like munitions for like tanks, like the tank shells and anti-aircraft rockets and big things as well. So, uh, so they, and they decided that they didn't want to deal with a million different contractors, so they were going to make it a one single contract and they're going to give it all to one winner. So we were like, and this was all types, you know, because the Afghans, like the Iraqis, they, spe, they are used to using Warsaw Pact. Style weapons. Um, there's two major different weapon systems in the world. There's the NATO weapons, which is the M16, and uh, what the allies of of the NATO, you know, the United States and Europe, uh, and their allies. Uh, use. And then there's the Soviet era uh, Warsaw Pact weapons, which the former Soviet Union used like the AK-47. And uh, the Iraqis and the Afghan Afghanis, they were used to f- using Soviet era uh, style weapons. Uh, they require a lot less training. They're uh, much cheaper to produce. They're, they're less, you know, they don't have as good performance. You know, it's like the difference between like a, like a Uh, Toyota Corolla and like a Ferrari, the M16, it's a Ferrari, it works really well. But if you better take really good care of it, and you have to know how to like, take care of it, otherwise, it's not going to work at all. A Toyota, you know, you you know, it won't work nearly as well as the Ferrari, but it'll last forever. And you could abuse it, Mm. you know, so that's like the difference between, uh, you know, Warsaw Pact weapons and NATO weapons. And uh, the Afghans were trained on On Warsaw Pact weapons, which the United States does not manufacture. So they had to put up a request for, uh, quote, for, you know, to get this stuff from overseas, which opened the opportunity for middlemen like us to uh, get in and get this business. So we had already been dealing with these types of ammunition uh, into Iraq at a much smaller scale. So we already had a, a lot of what they call the past performance or you know, proof that we we're able to deliver these kind of uh, uh, items. And uh, so we figured, hey, we have a real shot at this because we have the past performance and we actually have a pretty good network of suppliers that we've built up over the years uh, to, uh, to get really good prices. Uh, So we worked really hard and we got the best possible prices that we could and we submitted it to the government. And to make a very long story short, we ended up winning it. And the total value of the contract was at our lowest possible prices was $300 million. Um, And we were told that the next lowest contractor was like 50 something million dollars over us, which obviously, uh, and they show this scene in the movie. where Jonah Hill gets really pissed, and that was true because we could have made you know forty million dollars more in profit if we had just bid it a bit higher. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we didn't obviously know about what was, what the other prices were.
1: So that scene in the movie is ob- it's a hilarious scene. Yeah. Um, is that is that pretty accurate to how it actually went down that day?
0: Uh, it, it's similar, but they so we found so the way we found out was not I mean they you know obviously they they reformat the story for you know to make it work well in a uh, in a in a movie um we found out over the phone someone kind of like told us you know it, w- it wasn't like a big dramatic meeting at the pentagon like they show in the movie you know which which looks cool on screen but the, we found out that information you know one of the guys in the pentagon kind of told us he's like I'm really not supposed to tell you this, but you guys came in blah 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 you know like 50 million dollars under and like we heard this over the phone and we're like oh my god fuck you know <laughs> so so it was accurate in that sense it was just not the, the exact same scene as they showed it show in the movie um so you you were you were pissed you were, were you yeah were you pissed totally. or. But I but mean, you also yes just won no. like a three hundred million dollars yes, contract. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, we were we were pissed that we weren't making that we could have made more, a lot more money, um, literally like double, or, you know, double our profit margin if we had known. But you know, then again, we won and the other guys lost, so uh, you know, we couldn't be too upset about that.
1: So it's almost it sounds like it was about a year and a half from like when you first started to when you secured that contract. About yeah, about, yeah, about what yeah. what are you thinking? like what's going through your mind you just want a 300 million dollar contract with the US government I- I'm assuming at those numbers like you're you're like wow my life's forever going to be changed. Oh yeah, contract. I I
0: was going to make millions and millions of dollars, uh more money than I needed to live for the rest of my life. And and with a few million left over to hopefully uh you know promote my music and make myself a rock star. That was that was the plan. And I figured, you know, once this contract is over, I'm out of this business. So I'm going to take my millions, invest it in something safe and go live my best life. And uh Uh, you know, because it was, despite what they show in the movie, um, you know, working with, with Ephraim was not particularly pleasant. Um, you know, in the movie, they show him as a funny guy, you know, like really charming and he was a funny guy in real life. You know, he was a funny guy and he could be charming, but he was a total prick. I mean, he was, he was just a a complete asshole and just treated everybody like shit and uh, it was just a very unpleasant and toxic work environment, um, you know, especially when we started hiring employees and he would just treat everyone like shit. It was just not like not a very, you know, nice work environment. And I honestly was uh, really looking forward to being able to retire from that work in general and working with him in particular. Um, so you were in so, it like
1: purely, purely for the... The financial opportunity, and you're like, "This yeah, is my out now." That's exactly it.
0: Yeah, I was not in it for the joy of arms dealing. It was not. Uh, it was not something that I I really enjoyed doing. Um, but I thought, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to do this contract. You know, over the course of two years, which was how long the contract was supposed to take, I'll make you know tens of millions of dollars, and that'll be enough for me to retire quite comfortably and and do whatever I want to do for the rest of my life and never have to worry about money again, as long as I invest it wisely. So, uh, that was the plan. So I figured, you know, Hey, I'll put up with this guy and with this business and you know, this whole situation for another two years and, uh, and then I'm out. And, uh, obviously it didn't work out that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, I, he ended up, uh, as very famously in the movie that, that is true. Uh, he ended up, uh, just deciding that he didn't want to pay me anything. And, uh, I left the business and told him I'll see him in court. And, uh, yeah, I never ended up making any money from that contract actually to this day. Never ended up making a penny from that contract. Wow. So,
1: So, yeah. So before, before we get to that, um, so I'd love to, so obviously you, you go overseas, at least in the movie, the way it's portrayed, you go overseas and you realize you have, uh, a tremendous issue in front of you guys with with the ammunition, right? Um, I guess would love would love to hear that uh, right. piece of the so, story as well from you, right?
0: So in the movie, they have me going over to Albania, and um, you know, they I didn't actually go to Albania. Um,
1: no, you've never. Have no, you been? You've never I'm, been there. I've never
0: been to Albania, but uh, <laughs> I've been to many other places that they don't show in the movie. You know, like I've been to, you know, like uh, the. If they had big arms show in Paris and South Africa India. the, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, did a bit of traveling, you know, and, and for that business. But, you know, for, you know, for the sake of the movie, you know, they have to keep the movie to an hour and a half. And uh, so they, they, you know, they just they pick and choose, you know, certain events and they string that into a story. They leave out a huge amount of things that happen and they make up some things that never happen. Uh, in order to, uh, you know, fit the formula of the movie. If anyone's actually interested in the real story, there was a book written uh, called War Dogs uh, that the movie is based on. It's uh, by Guy Lawson, spelled G-U-I like Guy, but it's pronounced Guy in the French way. Guy Lawson, uh, he wrote a book and that book is an accurate portrayal of the story. Uh, But, you know, obviously they had to turn it into a Hollywood formula, which is why the movie's a bit different. Not very different, but a bit different. So uh, one great example of them making, you know, fit the movie formula is they, you know, in movies, they try to keep the story as simple as possible. So they so there was a a, a, when we realized a lot of our ammunition was coming out of this country, Albania, uh, you know, which is a little country next to Greece. Um, We decided to send someone over to inspect it. I couldn't go, Ephraim couldn't go. He was dealing with a whole bunch of other contracts. I was dealing with the federal government. That was kind of like my main role was dealing with the logistics and the federal government. Um, And so, and you know, the federal government is on US time. So we figured better, better to be in the United States for that. So we hired uh, my best friend, uh, Alex Podritsky, who's in the book, but not in the movie. And he went over to um, to Albania to inspect the ammunition. And of course, the movie they wanted to simplify the story, so they just combined his character into mine, and they just had me go over there, just so they didn't have to introduce another character. So when he went over there, he discovered after inspecting the ammunition, which is what we sent him over there to do, just to make sure it was good quality, that the ammunition was had all this Chinese writing on it, all these Chinese letters on the boxes. And in our contract, it said that there's no Chinese ammunition could be delivered under this contract, either directly or indirectly was the way it said it in the contract. And the reason they, they put that in our contract was because there's an arms embargo against China that was put in place in 1989 after the Tiananmen square massacre, where, um, if people aren't aware of this, there was in 1989, there was a big pro, uh, protest in Tiananmen square, which is in the center of Beijing, um, uh, by a bunch of like, like tens of thousands of college students were protesting because they wanted a uh, democracy. And uh, the Chinese government brought in tanks into the square and just ran everyone over and like killed thousands of people. It became a huge thing. There's a very famous picture of like a, a Chinese man facing down like a line of tanks. Uh, and then they ran him over, you know, it's a very famous picture. Tank man. If anyone wants to Google it, they can find tank man. Um, <laughs> So, because of this horrible uh, 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 situation, the United States put an arms embargo against China to punish them for uh, for the uh, for the army's role in crushing this protest. Um, And uh, so, so it's illegal since 1989 for U.S. uh, companies and U.S. citizens to either buy or sell uh, military equipment to the Chinese. Now, in you could buy a Chinese-made AK-47 in the United States legally if it was brought in before 1989, while it was still legal. It's it's legal to resell it, right? You know because yeah. it, because you can't you know if it's already in the United States and it was brought in legally while it was legal, you can trade that. You know that's still legal, but you can't buy a new Chinese. AK-47 and import it after 1989. That's how that works. So the ammunition that was in Albania um, that we were going to sell was, was given to the Albanian government in the 1970s before 1989. So it was technically legal. And, um, but In our contract, it didn't mention anything about the embargo. It didn't mention anything about years of manufacture. All it said was, can't supply Chinese ammunition directly or indirectly, period. So, you know, this was a contractual thing, not an embargo thing. And we thought, well, okay, the ammunition doesn't violate the embargo. But it does violate the terms of our contract. So... What should we do? Should we tell the the, you know the army and say, hey guys, you know, we kind of fucked up. We didn't realize that this was Chinese and can you please put a little modification on our contract and allow us to deliver this? And we figured there was two options if we did that. Either they would say, sure, no problem. We you know, we we actually made a mistake because we should have put, you know, in the contracts no Chinese ammunition that violates the embargo, which was kind of the whole point. Or, you know, they could say, Hey, you know, according to our you know uh, uh, procurement procedures everyone has to uh uh, uh you know, bid on this contract on equal footing. So everyone else had to bid on the contract with the, you know, with the limitation of no Chinese ammunition, regardless of the manufacturing date. So it's not really fair to everyone else. So we're going to take this contract away from you, this $300 million contract, we're going to take it away from you and put it back up for bid. And good luck, you guys could bid on it again, you know, maybe in another six months, you can get it back, you know. <laughs> and so we we're like, ah, you know, what should we do? What should we do, you know what? Let's not give up this $300 million contract. It, what they don't know won't hurt them. So we hired someone to, um, to uh, repackage the ammunition to get rid of all the Chinese letters just so it wouldn't arouse suspicion or anything like that. And then uh, and that, and we started delivering.
1: Is it true when you guys were repacking, you were able to like condense how yes. much you could fit on yeah. a container and you guys were yes, s- actually making actually a lot so more money? the truth is,
0: is that we were planning on repackaging it anyway. Like even before we found out about the Chinese ammunition, we, we were – because the thing is at the time, uh, this was in 2007, uh, oil prices were spiking like crazy. Like they like tripled or something, you know, like year over year. Uh, it was the oil price. I don't remember exactly why, but the oil prices were really, really spiking, and air. We had to fly in all the ammunition on aircraft because Afghanistan is a landlocked country and it's surrounded by unfriendly neighbors like like Pakistan and and Russia, you know, Kurdistan and um, you know these uh, other countries that aren't particularly friendly to the United States. So we had to fly everything in on on these cargo aircraft and aircraft are you know big uh, it, what, the biggest part of the aircraft cost is the fuel cost and because the you know oil prices were spiking the aircraft uh, transport was extremely expensive and we were not going to make any money on this ammunition unless we reduced the weight of the cargo so we could fit more ammunition per per uh, cargo plane and these this these, this ammunition was part, the way it was packed was in these like uh sardine cans what they call them these like metal uh canisters that are vacuum sealed and those sardine cans are packed in these heavy wooden crates so we were planning on taking the sardine cans out of the wooden crates and depending on how much the sardine can weighed maybe replace the the metal can with like a cardboard box so we're, that's actually one of the big reasons we sent our guy over there to inspect it. Was one to uh, you know make sure the ammo was good quality, that it wasn't like you know rusted or anything like that, you know that it wasn't corroded, uh, and also to supervise the repackaging in, uh, operations so that we could actually make money on it. Uh, when we got there and he discovered it was Chinese, we were like, okay, well that obviously settles it. We have to repackage it. Regardless of the weight issue, but but it was kind of like a two birds mm. with one stone. We ended up making way more money by repackaging the ammunition because of the reduction in weight, and uh, you know, kind of covered our or what we thought was covered our butts by uh, by disguising the fact that it was uh, you know Chinese.
1: How long did you guys like discuss internally? And I guess I'm curious. Did you guys speak to? Like a lawyer, anyone, in terms of what you were doing, or was it like a two-minute discussion? <laughs> You're like, we're gonna do this. Did you sleep on it. How how you get? How would you land there? Um, you were like, we're gonna we're gonna repackage it, and we're just right. gonna move forward. We're not gonna yeah. risk losing. So the it wasn't something that we decided
0: like in two minutes. Uh, it, it we we did a lot of like research on uh, what you know the potential ramifications were of this situation, and uh, whether it was you know technically legal or not. Uh, we did ask Ephraim actually sent a email to the state department asking them if there was a, uh, like a, like a legal loophole, not a loophole really, but like a legal thing where if the ammunition is in a third party country, not China, that is for like more than five years, whether, you know, that, uh, will, uh, uh overcome the fact that it was Chinese origin it's, the State Department wrote back that there is no such provision in the law, <laughs> but but actually it turned out later in, in court there actually is such a provision in the law. The State Department made a mistake when they told us that um, because, I mean, really when you're asking, you know, their whole job is is to cover their asses, you know, so – they didn't really you know they get yeah. nothing by allowing us to do something but they they enter themselves into some risk by allowing us to do something so it's much easier for them to deny requests than to approve it it's safer for them so they you know uh, for whatever reason you know maybe just to cover their own asses they said no we can't do this but turned out that actually it was technically legal for us to uh, to uh, move that ammunition from other than the fact that it was a violation of our contract, which is a commercial matter. So uh, we did not violate the embargo or, you know, internet. We weren't, you know, in the end, I mean, just to skip ahead, we weren't charged with any crimes related to violating the embargo or, you know, uh, uh, doing business with the enemy, so to speak, you know, because we did it. Uh, and, mm. and in the end, well, I, maybe I shouldn't skip to the part to the ending. I'll just go, I'll just go, <laughs> I'll just go uh, you know, uh, chronologically. So yeah, you know, after like two days, we, you know, and we were like looking for like kind of like a a a, a way to get you know an official go ahead, you know, where we could kind of cover our own asses by getting someone in the government set to say yes, you could do this without actually tipping them off of what we wanted to do you know which was kind of like a delicate thing because you know we figured hey if they say no we may want to do it anyway so we don't really want to tell them what we're doing <laughs> you know so it was kind of like a really you know very kind of like vague worded emails trying to get them to say yes it's okay without telling them exactly what they're saying yes to so but after a few days of that failing you know Ephraim made the decision you know fuck it we're going to go ahead and do this anyway and so Alex, our guy over in Albania, he found this, um, this uh, box manufacturing company, uh, a cardboard box manufacturing company uh, uh, run by this guy named uh, Costa Trubishka. And uh, he's, he's played in the movie uh, The Box Guy. And he, we hired him to do the repackaging and they started repackaging it. We did a few aircraft flows into Afghanistan. The army got the ammunition. They inspected it. They loved it. They were thrilled that we were delivering, uh, you know, because it was getting into the fighting. season. Afghanistan has a fighting season, which is the summertime and a non-fighting season, which is the wintertime because it's just too cold to fight. So nobody fights in the winter, but it was spring at that time. It was getting into March, April and the fighting season was starting and they had very low ammunition. So they badly needed the ammunition, uh, you know, for our Afghan allies to fight the Taliban. So they were constantly pressuring us, deliver, deliver, deliver. Where's that ammo? Where's that ammo? And, you know, we were like late because we were like trying to figure out what what to do about this whole situation. And um, finally we made, we were like, you know, you know, screw it. We're you know they um they're pressuring us to deliver so much if we if we looked for a different source of ammunition Then we would have to. We would be at least three or four months out before we delivered it because the way it works is you need to apply for all these licenses and you know these permits to fly your aircraft over every country you fly over. You need a specific diplomatic uh, permission from that country in order to fly military equipment over it. So it takes a long time to arrange these logistics. And we knew if we changed sources, then we would be at least three or four months late in delivering which the army was very clear about was not acceptable because our allies were dying in Afghanistan because of the, their lack of ammunition. And so they were co- constantly telling us we need to deliver as soon as possible. So we made the decision, hey, you know, we're going to go ahead with this repackaging. We're not going to tell the army about it, which I think was a mistake in retrospect, obviously. I think that they were, honestly, I think they were so desperate for the ammunition that if we told them the real situation, they probably would have said, fine and signed off on it because you know they really didn't care it turned out came out later in court that they actually knew about it the whole time because everyone who knows the uh, yeah obviously not us but everyone in the industry who actually does this professionally and who knows the history of albania knows all that all their ammunition came from china because uh albania just to have a little a little uh um uh, tangent here albania is a very has a very interesting history it's this tiny little country. It was run by this paranoid dictator. Well, I guess all dictators are paranoid, but but uh, it, it, during the Cold War, <laughs> it, he was at first allied with the uh, with the Soviet Union, and then he felt that the Politburo of the uh, of the Soviet Union, the politicians running the Soviet Union, were a bunch of corrupt, uh, hypocritical assholes and that they weren't true communists, they were just greedy, selfish bastards, and doing things for their own political gain. And so he pulled himself out of the alliance in of the Soviet Union, and he allied himself to the Chinese with Chairman Mao, um, because he felt that the, uh, the Chinese were the true, you know, uh, communists who really cared about the people and, and all that. And so he So he allied himself with the Chinese um, and the Chinese were happy to have a foothold in Europe where they could, you know, bring their, you know, Chinese Navy to, you know, have a port there and have, you know, intelligence gathering and all that. So they were thrilled to have a a ally in Europe. Um, And in order to support their ally, they sent him a huge amount of ammunition because the the dictator of, of, uh, of Albania, he thought that because he pulled out of the Soviet Union, he would get in, that the Soviet Union would invade him, which is a huge, huge superpower. And because mm. he was a communist, he thought that the West would invade him too. Uh, you know, So he thought NATO was going to invade him. So he had, he was like sitting in, the, in between these two massive superpowers as a tiny little country. And he thought both superpowers might invade him at any moment. And his brilliant strategy to fight this was what he called total war, where every man, woman and child would become a, a soldier and they would all fight to the death. That was his strategy. And to support that, he built this massive network of underground tunnels all over the country, you know, underground. So it'd be safe from air raids. Uh, And he built these huge bunkers underground all over the country, spread out. uh, And he filled it with all the ammunition and weapons that he got from his new friends, the Chinese, so that his population, his citizens would have access to weapons and ammunition when the superpowers invaded. Now the invasion never ended up happening, uh, and when the Cold War ended and and the dictator died and uh, Albania's economy collapsed in the 90s, you know their money became worthless. So it, there was so much ammunition in the country that they actually used uh, uh, ammunition as currency for a time. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's how much ammunition they had there. So you know you'd pay for bread with like X number of pounds of of ammunition. You know <laughs> that, crazy. that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Until they like stabilized their government and, and made new paper currency, so I think for like a half a year or a year or something like that, there, <laughs> yeah, ammunition was the currency of the current country. So, but at the time in 2007, Albania was trying to join NATO. Uh, you know, the alliance of uh, of Western Europe, and part of NATO's requirements was that uh, was that new members get rid of all their old. Warsaw Pact ammunition, which NATO doesn't use. They use their own type of uh, weapon systems. So, you know, all the Soviet stuff, uh, uh, you know, had to be destroyed according to the requirements to enter NATO. And so they were going to have to pay a lot of money to have this stuff dismantled. So they were thrilled to sell it for the cheapest possible price to avoid the cost of dismantling it all and, uh, and still make a little bit of money on the sale. So that's how we got such an incredibly low price for this ammunition
1: a, a good discount yeah on that ammo yeah, exactly, exactly yeah
0: uh, the absolute lowest discount you know <laughs> so it was way cheaper than anywhere else which is you know probably one of the reasons we won the contract so um uh anyway uh, but this this really low price was was not enough for ephraim he wanted a better price uh, so he kept on pressuring the Albanians to give us a lower price, a lower price. They refused to do it. And then they said, Hey, you know, we know that you're having this ammunition repackaged right by this other Albanian guy. Why don't you, if you want a lower price, why don't you take that con- that repackaging contract that you're paying him to do away from him and you give it to us. We'll do the repackaging for you. You'll pay us for the repackaging because we're making money on that. We can give you a lower price on the ammunition. You'll save yourself money on the ammunition because we're making money elsewhere, and Ephraim said, "Sure, I don't care about that guy. You know, you can have the repackaging contract and uh, give me a lower price." So that's what happened. Obviously, that really pissed off the box guy, and uh, he got stuck with like twenty grand worth of boxes that he had nothing to do with, and Ephraim refused to pay him. <laughs> and which is just, I thought was petty, you know. Because just now I'm assuming you
1: guys. You guys are making like tens of millions of dollars on this deal. Yes,
0: exactly. You know, we, we were going to make, we stood to make, you know, 50 plus million dollars on this deal and he didn't want to pay this guy 20 grand just to shut him up because he was a greedy piece of shit. So, uh, he, um he you know refused to pay the box guy the box guy got super pissed off about this and went to the albanian media and told them that the albanian poli- because uh, corruption is a huge problem in albania it's a it's a very it's a very public uh, it's like their number one you know problem is that the politicians all, uh, you know of, of all all the politicians uh, in albania i mean in most countries but in albania in particular are um you know looking to enrich themselves from their positions and uh, and and uh, we you know we kind of we didn't know this for sure, but we were told by the guy who set this deal up the uh, it was actually went through an intermediary uh, Swiss arms dealer the guy who uh, Bradley Cooper p- plays in the movie so he was very close friends with um, the son of the uh, of the prime minister at the time and you know, we we obviously we didn't ask questions. We didn't know for sure, you know, but we assumed he was paying him off, you know, because that's how he was able to secure the the contract. But, you know, we just paid the Swiss guy and what he did with the money wasn't our business as far as we were concerned. But, uh, you know, I think Ephraim had mentioned this to the box guy that, you know, that, uh, you know, this is uh, probably getting you know being that the the deal was being run by the Albanian mob and who was paying off the Albanian politicians, and so the box guy went to the Albanian media and told them about this, which I, they published and really pissed off the uh, the uh, the mob who ended up and this guy ended up getting killed. Uh, so in the movie, it's the the driver who gets killed, right? You know, yeah. Um, you know, like what happened to the driver in real life? It was. There was no driver. In real life, it was the box guy who got killed. And mm. the box guy got killed because he opened his mouth about the Albanian politicians and the Albanian organized crime making money from this deal. Uh, he, di- I mean, he died in a so-called car accident, but he died in a car accident. He was driving by himself on a flat field and somehow he got thrown 30 feet from his car (laughs) and and there was no other cars on the road. He crashed somehow on a flat road and got thrown 30 feet from his car and died, Um, you know, so under mysterious circumstances. So, you know, I think most people assume that it was uh, that the, that the mob killed him for opening his mouth about that. But before he died, he also, he also, Talked to the New York Times and told them what was happening. And he also talked to the uh, to uh, the Justice Department in the United States and told them what was happening. And they opened up an investigation. So by, you know, around six months later, so the Justice Department actually told the army, you know, about the whole uh, Chinese issue. And the army told them, this came out later in court, we saw internal emails between them, the army told them, you know what, the, the importance of the mission is, is more important than, than this particular, you know, issue in the law. So we're going to, unless you have a direct order from you know like a high up official in the justice department or from you know one of the people in the in the in the administration ordering us to stop taking these deliveries we're going to continue taking these deliveries and you know they the justice department didn't have any order from any high level official to telling them to do that so the army kept on taking deliveries even after they got email confirmation from the justice department that it was Chinese ammunition, uh, for like another six months, they kept on mm. taking delivery after that. So they kept on taking delivery at this point. I had already left the company because, you know, Ephraim informed me just like he didn't want to pay anyone else. He didn't want to pay me. So I told him I'm not going to, obviously I'm not going to continue working if, uh, you know, you're not going to pay me what we agreed to. And I left and uh, started my own company. And, uh, you know, was, I was bidding on some contracts and I, w- I was about to win my own first multimillion dollar contract under my own company. And then literally the next day, like the day I was supposed to get this contract, uh, the New York Times published a front page article with mine and Ephraim's mugshots on the front page. And a picture of rusty ammunition, and they said these two bums are delivering low quality ammunition and putting our our uh, our uh, you know allies, our Afghan allies, in danger. And the Bush administration is so you know. Uh, uh, incompetent because they trusted these couple of stoners from Miami you know <laughs> they called us the stoner arms dealers that was like our nickname in the media uh, because I, I think like Ephraim had like a, a weed ch- like he had been arrested at some point and he had, he had like a little bit of weed on him so that was like on record um, <laughs> so we, we were our nickname was the stoner arms dealers and um, you know this became like huge and it was the, the whole rusty ammunition thing they had what happened with that. Uh, they, they made it sound like everything we were delivering was like rusty and low quality and, and dangerous, but actually it wasn't true. It was, um, there was one shipment of around 60,000 rounds, which is uh, out of 150 million rounds so very small amount um that uh that was um corroded and the army inspected that and they rejected it and didn't pay us for it and so that stuff was lying around at the at the receiving point in kabul Mm. which is what when the new york times sent a reporter to investigate and look around that's what they saw because that was the only stuff that they kept around at that area because they didn't obviously send it off to um to the soldiers to fight. So, you know, so that was the picture he got of the stuff we were delivering was this corroded, nasty looking ammunition. And the way that they published the articles, they made it sound like all the stuff we were delivering was this low quality garbage, Uh, which wasn't true. I mean, the army wouldn't have paid for it if that was the case. And they didn't pay for that particular ammunition.
1: So the government, they knew pretty quickly on what was going on. Oh yeah, I mean they—they they knew. I mean they
0: actually they knew even before we delivered. Well, the State Department knew. You know, there's different branches of the government, and they yeah. don't necessarily talk to each other. And uh, they all have their own little mission. So you know, the Army, you know, their their goal is to fight the wars and to you know supply our allies who are helping them fight the wars, right? So there, that's who our contract was with the, the Army, the State Department. Uh, their goal is to is to make sure that international treaties and cooperation happen. So they're much more concerned about the embargo, you know, because they're like trying to implement uh, the United States's international politics and international uh, uh, strategy. So, you know, so to them, the, you know, the arms embargo is very important because, you know, that's kind of part of, of the United States foreign policy. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're supposed to support the foreign policy of the United States. Now, before we even started delivery, before we even repackaged the ammunition, our guy Alex he met with one of the State Department guys in Albania, and the Albanian, uh, and he wasn't Albanian; he was American. The, the The American diplomat in Albania who was assigned to the to the uh, you know the embassy of Albania he told us he I mean he told Alex you know you know I, I you know this stuff is all Chinese uh, so but I think that this is a great you know solution because they're trying to get rid of it and you know the Afghans need it so it's really a win-win-win for everybody so he made it very clear that he understood that the stuff was Chinese and which was another reason we figured it wasn't really such a big deal you know we figured you know that the guys who are in charge of enforcing the embargo don't care about it, so
1: why should we? Yeah, you know? so you never thought that you were going to get – tr- like you were never nervous that you were going to get it legally in trouble or
0: – We, you know, we thought that uh, that it was always a possibility. We didn't we, – you know, I wouldn't say that, that it was – that we were under the impression that everything we were doing was risk-free, but yeah. we thought it was – we did think it was very unlikely – Because we figured the State Department doesn't care. And if anyone should care, it would be the State Department, you know, Uh, you know, because that's really their job is to enforce these this policy and they don't care. And it really doesn't even violate the terms of the embargo because it was brought in before 1989. It was given to the Albanians by the Chinese in the 70s. So it was technically even legal under the embargo. But we decided to repackage it anyway, uh, besides to save money, but also to disguise that it was Chinese. Because we figured, you know, the government is filled with bureaucrats who love to dot their eyes and cross their T's, and and people are much more concerned with keeping their job than the overall. Uh, you know, then whether or not the idea, you know, is beneficial. So like if you think about it, if you take a step back as the as the uh, State Department guy did, you know, this whole c- scenario was that was great because it was the cheapest possible ammo, which meant that the U.S. taxpayer was paying the least amount of money for this, which is what, you know, taxpayers want. What the government wants to do is to spend as little money as possible on, on these things. Um, it got rid of a, of our ally. The, Albania is an ally of the United States. It's actually extremely pro American country, and it also wanted to join our alliance of NATO. And the requirement was for them to get rid of this ammunition, so it helped them out, and it helped the Afghans out because they really need the they really needed the ammo. And it didn't benefit the Chinese in any way. So it really was a win 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 for everybody, but. If you get a bureaucrat who is like, oh, over here in the contract, it says that you can't supply ammunition, you know, this Chinese, which is what the Justice Department, that was their view, you know. So the Justice Department, their whole goal is just to enforce the laws as written, right, and to look – they're really looking for – Any violation of any law that they can find because that's their job. Their job is to find lawbreakers. And if they could find any law that you're breaking, their whole job is to go after you, whether or not them going after you is a beneficial thing to the country or not. I understand. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. So they, so when they got this report that we were, you know, kind of doing this sneaky kind of thing and I'll be the first to admit it, it definitely was a bit on the sneaky side. You know uh, we, you know, it's not like we were upfront and told the army, Hey, this is what we're doing. You know, please give us permission. We, we did hide the fact that it was Chinese because we were afraid of bureaucrats who were going to insist on following the letter of the contract, despite what, you know, common sense would tell you to do otherwise. Uh So, you know, so we, so we did do that. And the, but the justice department, obviously their job is to bust lawbreakers. So after, but, and they tried to bust us and they, they told the army, Hey, we're going to bust these guys. And the army said, no, you're not hold off. We need this ammo. And they didn't let them do anything until the New York times published this article. In February of 2008, around like six months after the, uh, the you know the uh, the Justice Department informed them of the ammunition, uh, so six months later, after taking consistent deliveries, multiple deliveries a week, I think at that point we had delivered like 71 aircraft loads of that that type of ammunition from Albania, and then the New York Times article hit, and it became a huge political uh you know um scandal. And like this article, like I, I had like a Google alert on my name, so... I saw my name pop up in like 300 newspapers all over. In every major city in the world, their like newspaper republished this article. I didn't even know that newspapers do this, but apparently, you know, the Associated Press. So a lot of newspapers, they they just like republish articles written by other newspapers. So this article was republished like by 300 newspapers all over the world. And so every single like city on earth was talking about this story at the time. And it became a huge political scandal.
1: And then, like two days later, the Justice Department was like, okay, we're bringing charges against you, you know? Got it. So in, in the movie, you're with your girlfriend at the time when you got like a phone call from, you know, from, from the government, I don't know, yeah. no, from maybe the New York Times uh, or someone in press looking to get like your, your words on the story, etc. Right, right. What was it like, like the article breaks, what was it like for you with maybe your closest friends, your family at the time, etc. Oh man, it
0: was, it was rough. I mean, my dad is a rabbi, so it was, uh, (laughs) you know, very publicly, very embarrassing for him.
1: What was that like for you with your family? I mean, at the time they, they, they highlight your girlfriend. What was that, that experience like for you at that time? Um, was not pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, the,
0: uh, um, my like my dad told me that like all his like friends were calling him up and saying is this guy related to you he has your name you know he has your same <laughs> last name it's like yeah that's my son and they're like oh we're so sorry oh man <laughs> so yeah it was a uh, really a you know embarrassing thing for him and um my my grandfather was obviously extremely upset and you know we kind of had a falling out uh over that uh for like a little while but you know now you know Luckily, I've moved beyond that time in my life, and uh, uh, I think you know now uh, have a legitimate, uh, res- um, you know, uh, responsible business that everyone that everyone loves. So I think now they're all happy with me again.
1: <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I want to I want to get into that in a, in just a moment. Yeah, you said you you left the business. Um, and yeah. you you started bidding on your own government contracts. You won your first yeah. million dollar plus deal. Right.
0: Well, I was about to win it. They told were about me to it. I, was going, I was going through the final stages for them to award the contract to me because I, I had the lowest price and everything. I was going to win. I was going to make like, uh, I think something like a million dollars on that contract. So I was good. You know, I was about to make significant amounts of money. Uh, and then the New York Times uh, article hit. And then they just they didn't award me that contract just because of the controversy.
1: When you came home, like you're back home. You just, you just, obviously uh, you have the falling out and you, you're no longer going to make any money from this $300 million deal that you thought would set yeah. you up for life. Are you just yeah. like, I just want to play music or like, or were you back to, I need a, fi- I need, I need some money to survive. I'm just curious where you were at, uh, like mentally at that point, like right. if, if it crossed your mind, like, listen, I'm just doing this. I just want to go play music or you were,
0: um, right.
1: were, were you tied to like, I imagine it's, it's it's truly devastating. I'm sitting here, obviously in New York, but it's like I want to give you a hug. Yeah. It's devastating to think <laughs> yeah. you're about to make, a, you know, three hundred million dollar contract. Yeah. You just worked months and months. It sounds like maybe oh, years, year, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah, you have the falling out, and you decide to go back into it. But at the beginning, you you really went into it in the pursuit of financial yeah. freedom to go and pursue music. Right. Right.
0: So yeah, I mean, it was definitely one of the hardest moments in my life when I realized that all my hopes and dreams were shattered. Um, You know, I was... Like in my mind, I was already a millionaire, you know, like in my mind, I was like, oh, man, I am for sure going to be making so many millions of dollars. I had my whole life planned out, you know, like I'm going to go here. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to, you know, record in this place and play with these musicians. And I think I'll (laughs) hire that guy to, you know, manage my, you know, like I literally had every, in my mind, the money was already in the bank, you know, very much counting my chickens before they hatched kind of scenario. You know, because, I mean, we were pulling in many millions of dollars into the company bank account. The company was making millions and millions and millions of dollars at this time. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I was just naive and foolish, but I didn't think that my so-called best friend and partner was going to, uh, uh, you know, screw me out of all of that. But, you know, in retrospect, I'm not surprised that, you know, I just kind of, you know, I, I should have I should have known really because he screwed so many other people. Why wouldn't he screw me? You know, like why? what makes me special, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: You know, so I, I think it's just a big lesson that you learn in life that, uh, you know. If someone is going to treat other people in a certain way, don't be surprised if he treats you in that exact same way. You know, that's like uh, you're not special, you know, even though he'll tell you you're special and he'll tell you we're best buddies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, at the end of the day, someone who is willing to to uh, scam people is willing to scam you, too. You know?
1: Yeah. So, you know,
0: I, I've learned it was a very hard lesson. And I've learned uh, that no matter how big the opportunity is in life, um, you know, it's not worthwhile pursuing opportunities with people who are just shitty people because, you know, the opportunity will always go to shit at some point just because of the people involved. So, uh, yeah, it was extremely difficult. I mean, like, you know, my, my had, uh, I had my, you know, all my, my, the work that I put in, like, you know, at that point, at that point it was a solid year of work on that particular contract, but, you know, more than a year and a half of, work in the overall business that I, had, you know, uh, put my life on hold in order to dive in and work my ass off 18 hours a day to uh, work at this business. So it was extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, I went through like, a, a few weeks of, you know, pretty hardcore depression over it. Uh, But then I realized, you know what, I have all these skills and all this knowledge, you know, screw that guy. Um, I have all the connections and, and I always got along very well with people. So and he didn't, you know, like he was just an abrasive personality. So like all our contacts I was mainly the main source of contact for most of them, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was the guy talking to all the suppliers and to all the logistics people and to, you know, to, and to the government itself, you know, to the, to the contracting officers, I was doing, you know, a lot of the work. And was the, you know, kind of the human face to the company. So they all knew me and they all, you know, liked me, uh, liked working with me. And they generally didn't like him because he was, he was the guy who was, who did all the tough negotiating. He would come in and, and like fight and scream about every little penny and they all hated him. Right. <laughs> uh, and, but he was a very good negotiator. I mean, he was very, very good at squeezing like more profit out of any deal. That was like his, his, like his, uh, a serious skill he had. But, you know, that didn't earn him many friends. So I realized after, you know, my my few weeks of depression after leaving the company that, you know, I had, you know, I had all the contacts. I had all the knowledge. I had the skills. So, yeah, I I decided to, uh, you know, start my own company because I wasn't going to, like, leave after a year and a half of, you know, backbreaking. Well, not backbreaking, but, you know, sleep depriving work. Uh, <laughs> You know, to uh, to just like walk away and, you know, do nothing with it and have nothing to show for it. So I started my own company and uh, I, uh, you know, was, as I mentioned before, I was uh, on the verge of winning my own first multimillion dollar contract that was literally going to net me like a million dollars. And then the day I was supposed to get the contract, the New York Times article was published. And then the army decided, you know what, we're in this too much political heat here. We're not going to give you the contract. So kind of screwed me two ways. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's them's the breaks, as they say. You know, that's how it goes. Uh, and, uh, then, the, you know, the army, uh, uh, not the army, the justice department, uh, you know, two days after the New York times article came out, said, you know what, we're, uh, we, you know, cause they told us they weren't going to charge us with anything, you know, cause they were like investigating things and they were, you know, they said, you know, what, there's probably nothing, you know, nothing here that we could really charge you with. So, you know, they, they told us that we weren't, wouldn't be charged. And then two days after the article came out, they're like, actually, we're going to charge you with fraud. And the, the, the fraud is uh, that, you, that you lied to the army about the origin of the ammo and that you actively had an operation to cover up the uh, origin. And so the way they, they, they did it was they said, look, you guys delivered 71 aircraft uh, loads of this ammunition to Afghanistan and from Albania. And each aircraft load, you had a uh, document that you included with the delivery um, uh, called a certificate of conformance. That's, you know, you're required to give them this certificate. And the certificate says, what is the items that's in the aircraft, you know, type of ammunition, how what the quantity is, the year of manufacture, and uh, crucially, the point of origin. That's the way they put it, the point of origin. And we put Mm. point of origin Albania. And they said, and you knew that the original point of origin was China, and you actively had an operation to hide the fact that it was originally from China. And so each one of these documents that you signed and gave to the government is an act of fraud. And you did this 71 times. So this is 71 acts of fraud and if you fight us and you take us to court we're going to charge you with all 71 acts of fraud and each act of fraud can get you up to 5 years in prison so the judge could technically give you 355 years in prison now if you plead guilty and you know then we instead of charging you with 71 acts of fraud we'll charge you we'll combine them all into a single act of fraud so the most you can get is five years worst case scenario, and because you plead guilty, we'll tell the judge that you feel really bad, and you'll be a good boy from now on, and you know you're 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 going to be a good citizen, and you made a mistake, and you're sorry, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, so that the judge should give you the low end. How, how old are you at this time? We're, I'm 25. So yes, yeah, so I was 25 years old, and the, this is the choice they gave me. You know, they're like, you know, you could either you know fight us in court. And to fight us in court, I hope you have a few hundred thousand dollars, which I didn't, you know, because otherwise, you're, you know, as, as the lawyers love to joke, how much justice can you afford? Right. You know, that's the way this country works. You know, it's uh, it's not really uh, you know, there is not equal treatment under the law. It's really equal treatment as long as you can pay for it. Uh, You know, there's a very different justice system for the people who Mm. can afford good lawyers and for those who cannot, uh, completely different. Mm. So if you know, you know, the the federal government has unlimited resources, and they have, you know, lots of lawyers on payroll, and they could, you know, uh, uh, you know, fight you to the ends of the earth with no end in sight and unless you could afford to have lawyer if you could afford to have lawyers fight them back then you're never going to win of course you know so they and then they give you these uh, these choices like you know if you plead guilty you're going to for sure spend a few hundred thousand dollars that you're not going to get that money back even if you're innocent you know um, you know the government doesn't pay your legal expenses yeah. if you win unfortunately uh, which i think they should um, you know, if you're found innocent, then they should pay your legal expenses. I think that's, that's only fair, but they don't. So, you know, if you're willing to lose a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, which I didn't have because my, you know, partner screwed me out of all the money. So I didn't have any money. I wasn't going to make my parents like more, you know, take out a second mortgage on their house, you know, cause I didn't want my parents to lose their house. Cause that was my only other option. I wasn't going to have my parents, you know, risk their house over me. Uh, over my mistakes, so I didn't have the money to pay for a lawyer, and uh, and you know even if I did, you know the choice was take a risk on on uh, spending the rest of your entire your, your whole life in prison, you know, get three hundred and fifty five years in prison, or you plead yeah. guilty and you uh, could you know. If you're lucky, the judge will give you the low end of the maximum five years. You'll get maybe a year, maybe nothing. Who knows? You know, it's up to the judge. Um, you know, maybe you'll get you know uh, just probation. I mean, that's always a possibility if the judge is feeling good that day. So, uh, you know, so that's the choice. It's not really much of a choice if you think about it. You know, it's like what sane person would you would take the you know? And that's why the federal government in the United States wins. More than 98% of their cases. And that's true. That's a true statistic. They win more than 98%. Mm. And because they give people these kinds of choices. So there's a lot of people who are in criminal justice reform are saying, you know, it's really not right that the prosecutors have the power to decide. You know, how to charge these cases, you know, like they can't, they shouldn't have the power to say, if you, if you fight us, we'll charge you with this amount. But if you plead guilty, we'll charge you with you know, like, what the hell is that? It's either you committed a crime or you did it, you know, you should charge people with the crimes they committed or not at all. So it's kind of a messed up system. It's, you know, any system where the Justice Department wins 98% of the cases, I would argue, is not a fair justice system, uh, because, you know, that's not really a fair fight when one side wins 98 plus percent of the cases. So, Yeah, it's most people aren't aware of these things, because they luckily have not had to go through the justice system, which I I wasn't aware of it until I had to go through it. Then I had a very painful education about how the so called justice system in this country works. Um, So of course, you know, we both pled guilty. Uh, You know, we weren't gonna, you know, we did the rational thing and pled guilty, even though, you know, we didn't technically violate the law. I mean, usually fraud, um, I mean, you know, whether you, we violate the law or not is a matter of debate, right? Which is what the whole you know, thing was about. But um, uh, usually, usually, just to finish my thought, usually fraud implies that you defrauded people out of money and you actually harmed someone by causing them to lose money for your own gain. In our case, the, fed, the federal government actually saved a huge amount of of money because of our so-called fraud. So you know we didn't really make anyone lose and that that came in that that was a uh, something that came up in our sentencing because the sentencing guidelines uh, are based on how much money fraud cases uh, defrauded the victim out of and in our case, it was zero. We didn't defraud them out of anything. Well, the government argued that, because of our fraud, they had to, to rebid the contract to take the contract away from us and give, you know, do the whole bidding process over. And they claim that cost them $150,000. So that was the level of fraud that they claimed. Uh, Mm. but yeah, but it's not like a normal classic level of fraud, like a Bernie Madoff style thing where, you know, someone literally steals money from another person and, and, you know, um, but it was a very weird case, but yeah, we pled guilty. And because we pled guilty, I ended up getting, uh, I got very lucky. The judge was very easy on me. I, of course, did everything I was supposed to do. I, you know, I went, you know, like, well, so the whole, the whole uh, uh, sentencing process, it took, it ended up to like, between the, the, the time that, that the New York Times article came out, they told us they were going to charge us. And the time we got sentenced was three years. It took us three years. We were in limbo and that's because one of our other partners uh one, one of the investors in the company decided even though he you know was well aware of the whole scenario of of everything that was going on he decided to take it to court he didn't want to plead guilty so he fought it in court and so that stretched the whole thing out uh to 3 years and um uh i was um I was, uh, by the time we got sentenced, you know, I would, I went back to school, I, you know, I worked, I got a job at a nonprofit, I, you know, stayed out of the arms business, of course, you know, I, you know, wanted to show the judge that I was turning my life around so she would go easy on me. And she did. She gave me seven months of house arrest, which is nothing. Uh, you know, I, I think we were all under house arrest at this point, you know, so not such a big deal, you know, cons- at least compared to prison.
1: Um,
0: you know, I had the, the the classic ankle tracking device, you know, the, the ankle thing on, that I couldn't take off like a tagged animal. Had to stay in my apartment for like seven months. Well, not so bad, you know, but um my ex-partner uh, uh, Ephraim he couldn't stay out of the business he kept on doing the arms dealing thing even though they told him not to and he ended up getting ensnaring himself in an undercover sting operation by the ATF and uh, they they got him to like travel up to orlando to do this you know, deal that they were telling him they were going to do, which he wasn't allowed to travel out of the Miami area. So he was violating his, you know, his, uh, his bond agreements. You know, we, we were out on bond, you know, we, uh, you know pending uh, sentencing mm. and he violated his bond agreement and then the the undercover ATF agent got him uh to pick up a gun because he brought like a gun uh to uh, you know to show him and he you know he's a gun nut so he loves guns so he picked up he's like hey let's go shooting this thing at the range and then right as he picked up the gun the undercover agent slapped the cuffs on him and said you're under arrest for felon in possession of a firearm because he had already pled guilty. So he was officially a felon and it's illegal for a felon in the United States to be in possession of a firearm. You could get up to 10 years in prison for that. So he violated another law uh, while he was waiting sentencing for the first one. So he could have gotten maximum five years for the arms dealing thing because he violated his, uh, his uh, plea agreement with, you know, where the, uh, the, you know, the, the, Prosecutors agreed to suggest to tell the judge you know that he that he should get the low end of the sentence now they don't have to because he violated his agreement by committing another crime, so he could have gotten five years for the arms thing and ten years for the for the arms dealing uh, for the um, felon in possession of a firearm thing so he could have gotten fifteen years total he hired the best lawyers in Miami he spent millions of dollars on them. And he ended up getting four years. So not too bad considering what he could have gotten. But he, he did it to himself. He could have gotten house arrest, I'm sure, just like me, if he had you know been smart about it.
1: So you're on house arrest for about seven months. The story is insane. So I guess right. what are you doing in those seven months? I'm assuming you finally did, or did you finally get the chance to, to go play some music?
0: yeah so i got a lot, i got had more time than I ever thought I would to play music uh, <laughs> i really couldn't do anything else so i was I was <laughs> playing a lot of guitar and uh you know finishing up uh, my uh, my songs on my album. so I came out with i wrote a bunch of songs while i was uh in that time and uh the next after the next year I came out with uh, with an album if anyone's curious to hear my recorded original songs, you could just look for my name, David Packhouse in Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, you know, all the all the famous ones. YouTube, I have a YouTube channel too if anyone's curious to hear my stuff, you could hear it. Uh I think it's pretty good, but hey, that's my opinion. <laughs> but um the one thing I realized, you know, while I was playing was that you know, by myself was that um I really missed playing with other musicians. In particular, I missed playing with drummers because, you know, drums keep the beat of the music. And, you know, if you listen to any of your favorite songs and you, you, without the beat, they're much, much weaker. People dance to the beat. The beat is really what, you know, gives energy to music. So I really miss playing with drummers. Uh, Obviously, no drummer was going to take, uh, bring their entire drum set over my house, you know, over my little apartment, which case, even if they did, they, they would wake the whole you know, apartment buildings and they wouldn't be. My neighbors wouldn't be too happy about it, (laughs) but, um, uh, I didn't have, you know, any drummers to play with. So I bought a drum machine, uh, which is an electronic device originally made to compose beats with. So the drum machine is a tabletop, like electronic device with a bunch of little buttons on it. And each button makes a different drum sound. So you could create beats by pressing these buttons and then record the beats in the machine. So it plays it back in a loop over and over, and then you could play music to the beats that you create. But I realized that while I was playing to the, to the drum machine, that every time I, you know, the beat doesn't do the same thing, the entire song, you know, it changes depending if you're in the verse and the chorus, the different parts of the song have different beats. So uh, every time I wanted the beat to change, I'd have to stop playing my guitar, press a button on the machine, go back to playing on my guitar, which interrupted the rhythm. It was very annoying. So I thought I need a drum machine that's hands-free, that's like in a little pedal on the floor that I could just operate with my foot while I play my guitar with my hands. And I was sure someone made it already, so I went online to look to buy it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I asked my musician friends, you know, if they'd ever seen anything like this. And none of them ever had, but they all wanted one too. So I thought if no one's gonna make this, I, you know, if no one's made this already and everyone wants it, this seems like a huge opportunity. And I I did a patent search and nobody even patented the idea, which was really shocking to me because I thought it was kind of an obvious I thought it was a real obvious idea, honestly. Mm. And nobody had even patented it. So I filed a patent on it. Patent got approved in under a year, which is like a record time. It's very rare for that to be approved so fast. Um, But I didn't know anything about developing products. You know, I was before this, the only business I'd done was brokering, you know, buying from one, selling to another. I never like created anything uh, new. Uh, let alone like a technology product, like a, you know, electronic product. So I didn't know anything about it. And, uh, but I started Googling, you know, you're going to teach yourself anything with your good friend, Google. And, uh, I started Googling and I found these companies, uh, that, um, promise to, uh, you know, create any product from based they their advertisement was like sketch to manufacturing you know that's they took you from like your nap back of the napkin sketch all the way to manufacturing and but there were a lot of these companies you know online and I didn't know who was good who was bad you know and so I sent them I literally made a very rough hand drawn sketch of what I wanted to create with little arrows pointing at the different knobs and you know, buttons and stuff with a little description of what each thing should do and how it should work. And I sent this really rough hand drawn sketch to like maybe 10 different companies. And I got a bunch of different quotes, proposals from them. And they ranged all over the place. I mean, they were like everywhere from like $30,000 all the way up to $300,000 and, you know, to build this thing. And I had, I was like, well, what's Mm. the difference between the $30,000 guy and the $300,000 guy? I I don't know. They all seem more or less the same as far as I could tell. So I just went with the cheapest one and that was a big mistake. Um, as you know, tends to be, uh, they just wasted like nine months of my time. And luckily I got most of my money back from them. Uh, (laughs) but they didn't give me anything useful or anything. And, um, then I kind of like, you know, gave up on it for like a year because I was so like, you know, discouraged from my failure of, uh, you know, of of these guys to do it. And then like I then I thought to myself, like, what, what am I doing? You know, this is still such a great idea. Someone's got to be able to do this. So I went back to my quotes and I decided, you know, what, instead of cheap, choosing the cheapest one or the most expensive one, I'm just going to choose the guys who seem like they know what they're doing. And I chose the, uh, the, um, the guys I ended up going with, they were actually, they weren't the most expensive. They were like $130,000, uh, but they had like a seven page proposal with, with like Each element of the project broken down into sub element, you know, into sub steps and each sub step, like listing the type of engineer that they would need to accomplish this and how many hours they think this person will spend doing this particular thing. And they had a whole like a chart of like how they, you know, they staggered the different uh, parts of the project into into the timeline. So they look like they had a real plan. But I didn't I didn't have one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Yeah you know, I, at that point I'd been, you know, saving my money up from like doing massage, you know, and I was back in school, I was studying mechanical engineering, but I, I had like 25 grand save total, you know, like my entire net worth at the time. Um, because I had spent all my arms dealing money on lawyers to keep me out of prison. You yeah, know, they're very, very expensive. So, uh, so yes, I, I only had 25 grand, which wasn't enough to build it, but luckily the, um, the, the, um, uh, lead engineer of this company that I wanted to go with. He was a drummer and he told me, he's like, you know, all my musician friends are always asking me to jam with them. And I never have time to jam with them, and I know that they will love this thing. They're you know it's not as good as a real drummer, but it's definitely the next best thing. You know when you don't have a drummer available, so uh, I know they're going to love this. And uh, I'll tell you what, we really want to get it. You know we really want to build this for you. So what we're going to do is, well, you can just give us a down payment, twenty five grand, right? Just happened to be all the money I had, and uh, we'll build you a working prototype, and then you can take it to crowdfunding you know um uh, which was my plan anyway uh crowdfunding for those who don't know is like uh, kickstarter is the most famous website that does crowdfunding if you have a project but you don't have enough money to do it you could put up you know like a prototype or something of you know the product you want to develop uh on kickstarter and people if they like it they'll contribute money towards making it happen and you could offer them different like rewards like so for me you know um uh, I called the product the Beat Buddy, like your buddy that plays the beat. And uh, you know, for me, the Beat Buddy, you know, anyone who contributed two hundred dollars would get a free Beat Buddy, you know, when it was manufactured. So he, so the engineer told me, he's like, you can put it up on crowdfunding, and hopefully that'll make you all the money you need to pay the rest of the engineering off. But if it doesn't, you know, we'll do the manufacturing for you, and we'll take a cut of the profits until we make our money back. And so I thought, well, you know, that's pretty risk free for me, mm. other than be risking all my money, you know, that I had (laughs) to my name other than that, you know, uh, but it's pretty good deal. So, (laughs) so I, uh, so I took the deal, you know, we, and they built me a working prototype, put it up on crowdfunding and, uh, raised, and it became the most successful crowdfunding campaign for any musician's product at the time, uh, raised $350,000 in a month, and uh, I was able to um, pay off the engineers and use the rest of the money to start manufacturing. And that's how I started my company that I run today called Singular Sound. Um, and uh, uh, now we have uh, six other products uh, that we've come out with uh, over the years. So it, the BeatBuddy launched in 2014. So, around three years after uh you know I was under house arrest and had the idea in two thousand and eleven uh we launched it in two thousand and fourteen and uh been running this company ever since then uh coming out with a new product you know about once a year or so on average
1: and uh all in all in the music space.
0: Yeah, All all in the music space so far. Uh, Recently, my brother and I just uh, launched uh, our first product that is not in the music space under a different company name, not the same company, but uh, we launched our first non-music product, general market product uh, called InstaFloss. And it's a device that flosses all your teeth for you in, uh, in 10 seconds. So, um, and the way we came up with that, we were always complaining, you know, about, you know, how, what a pain in the butt it is to floss your teeth. And we were like, you know, really wish there was something that could just floss your teeth for you, you know? And we we were like brainstorming on this for years until we finally figured out like a device. It's a water flosser. There are, there are like, like a water pick. I don't know if you've heard of that. So there are water picks out there which are, you know, better than string floss. I mean, at least, you know, the, uh, the uh, medical studies have shown that water flossing is actually more effective than string floss because it gets further under the gum line with the water than the string does. But, uh, but the problem with water pick is that you need to like trace the gum line you know, both the top and bottom gun lines, and you need to go on the inside of the teeth, you know, to go from the other side. And that's very awkward and difficult. And uh, you usually end up making a big mess spraying all over the place. And and it takes you a little bit of time to get it right. So uh, we d- developed a, a water flossing device that does both the inside and the outside, both top and bottom rows of your teeth, all at the same time. So you just move it once along your entire teeth. And, uh, and it flosses all your teeth in like 10 seconds. So if anyone's interested in uh, checking that out, just Google uh, or just go to the website 10secondfloss.com. That's the number 10 second floss.com and you'll find it. And the, the product's name is InstaFloss, just like Instagram, but InstaFloss. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> if you Google it. InstaFloss, you'll find that.
1: You guys launched that one on Kickstarter and Indiegogo as well? Yes. Yeah, we
0: launched it on Kickstarter. It started on Kickstarter and now it's on Indiegogo. Uh, and that became a huge success, uh, much bigger than the Beat Buddy, which is not surprising considering the Beat Buddy is just aimed at musicians, which is like ten percent of the population max. Uh, but everybody has teeth, and everyone hates flossing. So, uh, so now it's doing really well. How, how much did you guys raise? So we raised, I think right now we're up to about one point two million, and it's Crazy. been out there for for like under two months. So yeah,
1: I'm curious, what's it like to like i I imagine the low that you must have hit through your entire journey and uh you know the yeah. last hour plus sharing your story, the highs of it, and then coming down with the lows of of where you ultimately end up. what's it like now, having launched you know a very successful business mm-hmm. and it sounds like you're continuing to expand your mm-hmm. entrepreneurial portfolio with incredible well designed mm-hmm. products what's what's that feel like Thank today?
0: You. Oh, it's amazing I mean, I really couldn't be happier today, you know it's uh I, you know, like I wake up in the morning and I love my work, you know, it's like I love the people I work with, which is a huge thing, you know, I mean, as, especially compared to my former, you know, arms dealing days, I really didn't like, you know, the person I was working with. And it was like I was I would dread going to the office, you know, and, and getting on the phone with them It was just a very stressful Ordeal. But these days, you know, I love the work I do. It's creative. We create new things. I can feel good about myself that I'm making things that are improving people's lives and, uh, you know, bringing joy to people. And it's very, very fulfilling. So it's still tough. Of course, every every business venture and and everything in life, you know, has its challenges. And it's definitely by no means a, uh, you know, a a nonstop uh, success ride or or whatever you would want to call it. I definitely have plenty of setbacks uh, and challenges, but, um, but I feel really good about, you know, where I'm at now, because, uh, because I really love doing what I do. I love creating new products. It's very creative. Um, It's very fulfilling And, uh, and it's amazing to watch something that you just dream up, you know, actually come to life and Hmm. get into people's hands. And you, and now I, I love watching videos online of, uh, you know, people using my musical products to create all sorts of amazing music. And I see bands, you know, performing live with my products and I get letters in the email of, from people. I am, and I'm not making this up. I'm really, I'm really serious about this. I get many letters, uh, many emails from people who tell me that, you know, my products have changed their lives. Uh, you know, I, I had one guy from a, uh, one letter from um a 70-something-year-old guy who said he hadn't picked up a guitar in 30 years. And he saw my, he saw the beat buddy and he was like, that is the coolest looking thing ever. I have to get back into guitar. And he said he started, he dusted off his guitar that he hadn't opened up for decades. And now he's back into playing guitar and it's like one of the most joyful things that he has in his life. And he would have never done it without the beat buddy. I have another guy. I have another guy who wrote me. He's like, you know, I, recent, you know, I've always loved making music. It's always been my passion, but I never thought I could actually do it for a living. Uh, but because of the beat buddy, I now have like a full band sound, even though I play as a solo player, I, I have like a, a beat and now I can get gigs, you know, in all these places who require this type of music. I could play all these new different types of songs because I have the drummer accompaniment and I get, you know, people are dancing to my music and they're tipping me when more <laughs> because you know because now my music has a beat to it so I was able to quit my other job and I've been able to do music full-time so I couldn't thank you enough because you've literally changed my life and allowed me to to pursue uh you know my passion as my career so you know and this guy I'm still in contact with him we're friends it's on Facebook. It's, yeah it's, it's it's just so fulfilling and so gratifying I've had you know parents thank me because they got their children into like you know, practicing their instruments and like music teachers, you know it's engaged their their music classrooms, so it's just so gratifying. I mean, I think at this point we've had more than eighty thousand beat buddies sold, so you know eighty thousand people have used the beat buddy, and it's just like it's mind blowing when I think about it. I can't even like think of like like you know realistically uh you know. How many people that has affected in in a a positive way? It's uh, it's incredibly gratifying and incredibly fulfilling. So I I really love it, and I have zero. Just just for the record, I have no desire. To get back in the arms business, so all of your all of your listeners, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you guys. Please don't contact me asking you to teach you everything. I get that all the time. People always, uh, yeah, people are always messaging. Please teach me how to be an
1: arms dealer, and I'm like, you know,
0: I, I really don't want to.
1: <laughs> it's, it's funny because I think there's so many lessons from your story and. It is interesting because you know you spoke so much at the beginning about you know how all you wanted to do was play music, and I love how yeah. you found your way back back to that yeah. uh, you know in in uh, your love and passion for music, and it's how you built a thriving yeah. career now and amazing business. What what would you I say see. is the the single biggest lesson you know if you look back and you reflect on call it your previous life as an arms dealer? Um, a mm-hmm. lot of this show is focused around growth in the face of adversity. I, sure. I think I mentioned it to you via email or um, before mm-hmm. we spoke. But for me, my greatest adversity has been loss. I lost both my parents by the age of 25 mm-hmm. to rare cancers, and um, mm-hmm. a lot of guests who we who we have on the show, and really the the inspiration behind starting and building this platform is to help inspire people that uh, no matter what adversity we're faced with, uh, you know, you have to commit to moving forward and building your dream life, whatever that may be for you. And um, that's really what. Uh, has inspired me to share incredible stories with with our fans and our audience. And I'm curious for, for you, what would you say has been the, the single biggest lesson looking backwards on your previous life as, as an arms dealer?
0: Oh, man, so many lessons. But uh, if I had to boil it into one, um, I would say I, I, I would give it a, a kind of – it's kind of two sides to the same coin in a way. So, really, two lessons, but it's really a single lesson: a do and a don't. You know, I would say on the don't side: don't, don't do, don't enter enter into any, um, you know, uh, partnership with someone you don't enjoy working with. You know, mm. uh, it, particularly if the reason you don't enjoy working with them is because they have uh, negative personality traits you know something that's unlikely to change because you you know people don't change generally um and if you think they're going to change that's just wishful thinking so if you know if you enter into a into a um relationship into a business relationship, or, or really any relationship, but we're talking about business, you know, with someone who has, uh, you know, uh, negative personality traits that should be a red flag for you, even if the opportunity is big, it will probably not end well, just because this person's personality, I don't want to, I don't want to know if Defects is the right word, but shortcomings, Mm. you know, will tend to ruin the enterprise over the long term. And and that was something that I ignored myself, you know, while being in the arms business, because I knew that, you know, my ex-partner, you know, had these kind of nasty tendencies of... You know, being sneaky and screwing people over and, you know, taking ridiculously high risks and stuff. And and that was one of the reasons he was very successful in that business. Um, but it was also the major reason why the whole thing ended up falling apart and we, we ended up failing in the long term was because of, of those, you know, uh, aspects. The other side of that coin is, I think it's extremely, and it's a little bit cliché to say. I know everyone says, "Do what you love," right? Um, and but you know, I've, I've realized over the you know the the last six years that I've been running my business that you know how important that is to do because the only way you're going to succeed at anything is if you work really, really hard at it. People, you know, have this kind of rosy idea. Oh, I'll well, just do this one thing, and it'll be all easy street, right? You know, uh, even after you succeed at something, like even after we had a huge successful launch of the Beat Buddy, and people got their their units and they loved it, and we got amazing reviews, and we won a whole bunch of industry awards, and you know, and all these this, these amazing successes the challenges don't stop, you know, they they just become different challenges. Now you have to find the right people to hire fire the people and you have to make sure that your employees are doing what they're supposed to do. And you have to watch out for people who are trying to steal from you. You know, you have to uh, make sure that your manufacturers are doing their jobs and that the shipping people are doing their jobs and that you don't fuck up on, you know, the customs declarations and you know, that the marketing, you know, is, is effective and you know what I mean? It's just the challenges just become different challenges. Um And even after you have, you know, some measure of success. And so because you're you're always going to have challenges, you're always going to be working hard if you want to continue to succeed. So I think you have to uh, uh, accept the fact that hard work is something that will never go away. But if it's if you're doing something that you love doing then it doesn't feel like hard work or it feels much less hard <laughs> because if it's something that you like doing then yeah it might be difficult it might be a challenge but at the end of the day you know you love this stuff so it's going to be much easier for you to do it than if you're doing something that doesn't really mean anything to you you know like i honestly never really cared much about guns. It was just not something I was interested in uh, before or after my arms dealing career. Uh, the first gun I ever owned was actually after I quit working with uh, AEY. And I thought that my former partner might decide that it's cheaper to you know hire a hitman to kill me uh, rather than to pay me the millions of dollars he owed me. So I bought myself a gun just in case, you know, <laughs> that, that was the first time I owned a gun. Um, <laughs> nowadays i mean you know i i'm not even legally allowed to own guns because i'm a convicted felon but um but i you know luckily i have I, i'm not too worried about anyone trying to kill me because as far as i know i don't have any enemies <laughs> anymore <laughs> yeah if i've decided to uh not make enemies these days uh i, I do my best not to <laughs> so so um you know it, it's it's, uh, you know, arms dealing never really meant anything to me. So I wasn't exactly excited to do it. I was excited to make the money. Sure. Uh, But making money will only get you so far. And if, if, you know, if it's a long-term business, you know, my, and the way I put myself through it was I was like, okay, this is going to be a short-term money-making thing. I'm going to make the money and I'm out and then I'll do what I love. And that's how I I was able to stand it for like, you know, the, the few years that I did it. But if you're going to do anything long term, you have to enjoy the work that you're doing. Otherwise, you're just not going to be good at it because you're not going to be that motivated to work very hard at it, which is mm-hmm. going to be necessary. So, you know, so that th- th- those are the two major things. Always work with people that you trust and people that you enjoy working with and always at least try to do some to do work that you enjoy doing because it's going to make the hard work much easier to do. I love That's that
1: so we can we can start to wrap up the show I have a fan question that I thought would be an interesting one to ask What what's sure. it like having a movie made on your life and on your story I'm sure you get that one quite a bit.
0: It's uh it's surreal, that's for sure. Uh I, I definitely something that I never expected to happen. You know, I never in you know, never thought ever in my life, man, one day I'm gonna have a movie made about me. I never thought that. Uh <laughs> you know, it's it's not something that that I ever expected. Um and uh it's in in a way it's it's like it's it's obviously very cool, you know, uh especially because uh because I think that I was portrayed pretty well, you know, in the movie. I, personally, I think I'm a little cuter in real life, you know, than they portrayed <laughs> me, but uh, uh, definitely better hair. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I, I think that they 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 did a pretty good job on the movie. I think overall, I mean, despite it being a Hollywood movie and all the changes they made to the story, uh, you know, which they did, you know, they they definitely changed the story a bit. Uh, but the overall story is is pretty accurate and I think they did an, a pretty good job overall of telling the story. So I, I was pretty happy with how the movie came out. It actually, to be honest, I thought I thought that the movie came out way better than I originally thought it was going to. Because the guy who made the movie, the director, Todd Phillips, um before War Dogs, his big movies that he had that he was famous for was the hangover movies. Yeah. And and I thought, oh my God, they're gonna turn this into a hangover thing where like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna we're gonna be doing drugs all day and getting into wacky things and we're all they're gonna make us look like idiots and you know, you know, I'm like, I hope they don't don't turn me into a Zach Galifianakis character, you know <laughs> You know. So I thought I thought that, you know, uh, I was like, oh shit, you know, this is gonna be like a stupid movie. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure it'll be entertaining you know, he's obviously a very talented director and he, his movies are very successful, but, uh, but I thought that they would make me look stupid, but I thought that, you know, I think it was war dogs was a, was, um, Todd Phillips way of becoming a more serious director. I think that they, they, the, they kind of advertise the movie in the, in the, um, the previews as more of like a hangover style movie. That was kind of the style of the previews. Mm-hmm. But the actual movie itself was, it did have comedy in it, but I think it was a much, it was what they call a dramedy. You know, it was like kind of like a combination of a drama and a comedy. Yeah. I thought it was a much more serious movie than I thought it was going to be in the first place. And I think that they pulled it off really well. It was a great. Combination of of comedy and drama, and getting the overall arc of the story correct. So I was very very happy with how the movie came out. Um, to be honest, I thought that the movie would do much more for you know my music career than it did. You know, I thought, hey, you know, like millions and millions of people are watching this movie, they'll probably be curious to know about like my original music that I've made and listen to it. Didn't do a thing. <laughs> 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 like not like almost nothing, unfortunately. I mean like like uh I don't know whether it's because they didn't focus on my mu- they didn't even mention any they didn't even mention that I was a musician in the movie, let alone, mm. you know, have any sort of focus on it. So I you know, I could understand people not realizing, hey, you know, that that this guy is a musician. They did give me a a uh, little cameo in the movie, which was very cool. Uh, you know, in the like the first five minutes I'm I'm like the guy playing uh, guitar and singing uh, this a song to in this like a uh, uh, elderly care facility where my Miles Teller, who's playing me, is trying to uh, sell these uh, bed sheets to the to the owner. So I'm playing. Uh, so that was very cool. Like I'm in the movie, uh, and uh, I'm like like three seconds on screen. You know, <laughs> they show they like just pass by me as I'm playing guitar. And the funny thing about that was they had me um, play uh, the song "Don't Fear the Reaper," and they had me sing it. And I'm playing Don't Fear the Reaper to a room filled with 90 year olds. <laughs> so not my choice of song. I would have rather I wanted to play one of my original songs, uh, you know, to like, you know, kind of promote my music a little, but they were like, you're playing this song or you're not playing at all. That was that was the choice. So I was like, oh well, okay. Well, I guess they felt it was funny. So and, and you know, I mean, I guess it is it is kind of funny in a dark kind of humor kind of way when i when i shot that scene just i know we're, we're way over time here but i'll just tell you this one last thing yeah, when yeah. they shot when they shot this when they shot that scene well, i went out to la to shoot that scene and you know they had all the the actors you know you know these elderly people there you know to be part of the scene and uh, after they were finished shooting it, they wanted to, you know, me to stay like on stage for a little bit uh, while they got a few other shots. But they let the audience go and the, the exit of the, for the audience was right past me. So the entire audience filed single line right past me. And so and a few people stopped to talk to me. And some of them were like kind of like a little bit oblivious. they had no idea who I was, so they asked me, you know, like, oh, do you do this regularly? Can you come to my, you know, home and play a show for my birthday or something? And uh, you know, very very charming old ladies. And then like one guy was like a little bit upset. He's like, I know what song you're playing. That's not funny. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I didn't choose the song. But
1: another guy thought it was hilarious. He's like, oh,
0: that's very funny, very funny, <laughs> very funny.
1: They didn't know the movie was based on on your your life. No, no, I, they they
0: had no idea who I was. But uh, but they did they did like some of them like understood the uh, the the joke that the director was trying to make by having me play this particular song yeah. to that. You know, and some of them liked it. Some of them didn't, you know, some of them thought it was funny. Some of them very much did not think it was funny, but, uh, but, you know, Hey, it wasn't my choice of song. So, yeah, but I'll tell you this, as far as, you know, the, the movie. um So, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed. Okay. So just to summarize, I was happy with how the movie came out. I thought it was a great, very well-made movie. Um, I thought they did, you know, justice to the story overall. I was a bit disappointed that the movie didn't do more for my music career. You know, my level of fame has not, you know, uh, has not benefited me in that way. Um, But it has allowed me to meet some like famous people, which, you know, was very cool, you know, like some famous musicians, uh, you know, which has helped me in my current business as well. Mm. You know, so I I have a bit of a reputation now. So when people say, oh, you know, that movie War Dog, this is about him, you should meet this guy. He's an interesting guy. So like, I've met, like, um, I've met, like, uh, 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 people who've, uh, like, I've met, Pitbull's lawyer, for example. He's a musician. He's a bass player. And he lives in Miami. So he 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 like discovered my product, the Beat Buddy, and then he found out about the movie. And so he was very interested in meeting me. And now he's introducing me to all his famous musician friends and to Pitbull and to thought, uh yeah and to like Victor Wooten, who's like a super famous uh bassist in, in the musician community. And so that's been very beneficial to my current business. Uh and it's just super cool to just meet all these people that I probably would not have met otherwise. So that's very cool. And it also, you know, and these days, you know, I'm, I'm single, so definitely doesn't hurt, you know, with the ladies to have a, you know, to have a movie
1: made after you, you know? Uh, Did you have a a girlfriend at the time? Like, obviously, so you have the girlfriend that's always, uh, it's always mad during, during the movie. Was that how it was during that moment in your life? So I, I
0: did have a girlfriend at the time when, uh, when the movie that, that girl, uh, the, um, Anna de Armas plays her. So she is based on a real character. I really did have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, didn't look anything like Anna de Armas, but was very, very beautiful, but a very different way. She's actually, uh, my girlfriend at the time was, uh, um, uh, Malata. She's like a mixed girl, you know, like half African, half Spanish. And so she doesn't, doesn't look much darker than Anna de Armas, but but you know, very beautiful. But, um, uh, the, the difference between the real life and the movie, you see, in the movie, and this is a great illustration of how they change things for movies. In the movie, they needed like relationship drama because they know that ladies in the audience love relationship drama, so they need to tick that checkbox off in their formula because they know that the guys are gonna go there for the arms dealing and the and the business and the you know hangover style shenanigans right yeah. but their girlfriends their girlfriends are only gonna enjoy the movie if there's relationship drama so they created this whole dynamic between me and my girlfriend at the time where I was hiding that I was doing this arms dealing from her and it became this big thing about me lying about my arms dealing you know uh, uh, you know things in real life my girlfriend knew the entire time. She had no problem whatsoever with my activities. <laughs> you know, she knew from day one. She knew what I was doing, and she had no problem with it. All she was concerned about was that I was making money. <laughs> <laughs> so but it, excited for the new life, yeah. Start. Exactly. So yeah, she she had no problem with my business. Yeah,
1: I feel like yeah. there were probably thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people who went to like government sites after the movie, seeing being oh, like, oh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, David, I don't want to take up yeah. more of your time. Your story is amazing. I think for me, probably, you know, like you said, it is a cliche, but there's certainly many lessons in your story. But I think uh, one of the big ones is to pursue what you love. I just, I think Absolutely. it's so beyond interesting how you end up back in the music space. And I love how now yeah. you, know, you have, it sounds like you've always had the the entrepreneurial bug in, in some ways. Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I just love how you're building this incredible business now in the the music Thank space. You. I'll make sure to link out a few of the links that you had mentioned throughout the podcast, but, um, working people, if they want to learn more about, uh, the beat buddy, if they want to learn more about Insta floss, I know you had mentioned, or get in touch with you, mm-hmm. listen to your music. What are sure. some of the, the links that they should tune into?
0: So the easiest thing to do is to just Google because you know Google is your friend, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, at least until they give all your data to the government, right? But um, but uh, uh, the easiest way is is just Google if you want to learn about Beat Buddy, just Google Beat Buddy. It's like your buddy that plays the beat. One word, by the way, not two words. Beat Buddy. Um, our our company website is Singular Sound. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. Singular, like like. Single, singular sound, and the way the, that that name came about was, I, I would figured I'm creating um, a product that allows you to that to play by yourself, you know, instead of having to play with a band. So it's your singular, and singular also sounds is also means unique. And not just by yourself. So, Singular Sound uh, is the company uh, singularsound.com. We have other products as well besides the Beat Buddy. We also recently came out with the world's most advanced looper pedal, which is a, a device that records your music and plays it back in loops, so you could create like backing tracks as you're performing live. So, and that syncs with the Beat Buddy uh, to create like a full band kind of system. Uh, so you guys can all check out our other products as well besides the beat buddy on singularsound.com and uh or you could just google beat buddy if that's easier to remember and oh, you'll you'll find our you'll find our website that way uh instafloss like Insta, like, just like Instagram, Insta Floss is the flossing device that we just launched. That's still in crowdfunding stage right now. So we, it's not available for immediate purchase, but you will save yourself, um, about, uh, 20% off of the final price if you, if you, uh, Pre-order right now uh, instead of waiting until the end of the year when we're going to deliver. Uh, We're going to deliver in December. So uh, if you if you support us now and and order your Instafloss now, you're going to save yourself around sixty bucks. So Instafloss is one hundred and thirty nine dollars. If you buy it in advance, it's going to be two hundred dollars when it comes out on the market. So if you want to save yourself some money, Google Instafloss just like Instagram, just with flossing. And the website is 10secondfloss.com, ten, the number 10, and then second floss because it takes you 10 seconds to floss, 10secondfloss.com. And uh, my music is uh, can be found on all the major music streaming platforms, including Spotify, uh, Apple Music, Amazon Music, YouTube. And you just search for my name, David Pakows. And uh you know, my, my name, last name is a little, David is obviously a normal David name, but, uh, uh, my last, my last name is a bit unusual. It's spelled P-A-C-K like pack, you know, like you're packing and then P-A-C-K. And then the last letters are O-U-Z like zebra. So pack ows. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much. And, um, yeah, this was awesome. I know your story will, uh, definitely entertain and inspire many. So, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My
0: pleasure. it was great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, it' was really nice talking to you, and i, I wish you uh, the best in your uh, podcast it's uh, uh, I hope you do very well with it and uh, remember, keep undoing what you love.
1: <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode with David Packhouse. If you did, please take a moment, share this episode with a friend. Subscribe to us, Bits of Gold Podcast. Leave us a review and follow us along, Bits of Gold underscore podcast on Instagram. I hope you have an amazing rest of the week and more to come. I love your podcast, Bits of Gold. is where